As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We need to get from the data this week in the jobs report on Friday after November 2nd where a Fed will decide. Bruce Kasman joins us now, chief economist at J.P. Morgan. Bruce, I usually go global, but I got to go domestic uh, today. The Fed will decide. How close are we to a Fed that will decide what to do over the next number of meetings? Well, I think the basic message the Fed is telling us is that they're committed to creating a softer labor market, to pushing the unemployment rate up, uh, that the picture on inflation has been concerning enough uh, and that they really want to gain control over credibility here. Uh, so unless we get a really big downward surprise here, I think we're not only on track for a 75 basis point move uh, on November right. 2nd, but further big moves in the next couple of meetings after that. So what does your rate get out to? I mean, the game here, the power game is three and three quarters, four, even up to five percent. How does that what does that mean for the Bank of England? What does it mean for the Bank of Japan? What does it mean for the Bank of Indonesia? <laughs> Well, I think the Fed, as we would see it, goes up to the mid fours and stopping at the mid fours in our forecast does require to see a material slowing in job growth over the next few months, which is in our forecast. But obviously, we haven't seen yet. Um, I think the Bank of England story is really going to be dependent on how much the government gains credibility. We think they're on track for getting rates up at least to four percent, probably more as we go through the next few months. And as you're noting, there's a number of other central banks in EM that have wanted to slow down, maybe even stop here. They've been using uh, FX intervention. Uh, they've been using their rhetoric. But with the Fed moving, with the volatility we're seeing in markets, uh, it's harder. And we've obviously been backing off of what we thought was some kind of a moderation going on in EM central banks. Well, Bruce, that really raises the question of what point the dollar becomes the U.S.'s problem, not just the rest of the world's problem. What's the trigger point for the U.S. starting to respond for the U.S.'s sake, not just out of some charity uh, for other nations that are really struggling in the face of the greenback? So I think the big issue here is does the Fed get the kind of controlled moderation in labor markets and growth? Uh, does it see inflation come down? I think on the inflation story, the dollar rise is combining with what we think is a fairly significant fading in both commodity and uh, supply chain pressures. We think we're set up for a pretty decent drop off in goods pricing here in the next few months. We've already started to see it on energy. Um, and I think the economy actually shows resilience here. It looks like it's tracking 2 to 3% growth in the current quarter. So I think you have a tension that the Fed will get 
uh, a benefit here on inflation, I think, in the next few months. Uh, but it may not get the job market. It may not get the growth number that gives it the comfort uh, to stop, in which case the concern is is not so much that I think uh, the dollar is itself a drag in the near term, but the Fed keeps going in a way that it doesn't pay enough attention to the lags, and therefore the economy slows much more sharply <clears throat> next year. Let's realize the risk here is looking at six, 12 months down the road, not where we are right now. And this really speaks to the column that Paul Krugman wrote at the end of last week in the New York Times, where he basically said, is the Fed breaking too hard? The risks have moved to possibly yes. Do you agree with that view? Well, I think before we ask whether the Fed is breaking too hard, we want to ask, is the Fed intending to break things? Uh, because if you listen to Powell, if you listen to some other speakers, they seem to be preparing us for a significant slowing in, in job growth and perhaps a, a meaningful rise in the unemployment rate. So I think, yeah, there is a risk that they move too hard because they're, I think, concerned about seeing results and not paying um, the kind of attention to the lags in the monetary transmission mechanism. But there's also a concern that the Fed has decided that it's it's much more uh, appropriate to risk a recession here than keeping inflation unusually high. Bruce, none of this is in the textbooks. It's not in the Krugman textbooks, the Mankiw textbooks, the Kasman textbooks. With the survey data on Friday, I have a three-month moving average of non-farm payrolls of 286,000. That's job formation. Is J.P. Morgan saying that will break, that that will slip down to some appallingly three-month moving average of, say, 160,000? Well, um, we have a forecast for 300,000 job games on Friday, so clearly that's a, a pretty uh, strong number, even if it's a moderation. I think to get the Fed to uh, pause, you need job growth to slow to at least 100,000 uh, a month over the next uh, wow. two or three months. Uh, that, I think, is a hard one to, to get confident in. That's, that is what's based on our forecast, that the Fed, by the first quarter, sees that and is ready to pause. And I think that's the key issue here, both in terms of getting the Fed to pause and also the concern that if they don't see that and they keep moving, that they go further than they yeah. actually need to. Bruce, we got to expand on that. That's a stunning number. I have a run rate back decades of 150,000, and maybe you come up to 200,000 per month for non-farm payrolls is a healthy, a normal America. You're saying we've got to get down to 100,000, 100,000, then another 100,000 to make this Fed blink? Well, yeah, I think if you want to have an economy in which the unemployment rate is moving in a controlled way to uh, roughly four and a half percent unemployment rate, which is what I think the Fed is telling us, you need job growth to be a soft. A hundred thousand may not even do it, but I'd say a hundred thousand is probably the kind of number the Fed needs to see to be comfortable to be thinking about pausing. Bruce, this goes to something that you flicked at earlier. Do you think that it's inappropriate for the Federal Reserve to be targeting the unemployment rate at a time when the jobs market has dra dramatically changed post-pandemic? I think it's appropriate for the Fed to be targeting a softening in the labor market. I think it's appropriate for the Fed to be paying attention to what's happening in the inflation process, wages, salience, inflation expectations. But I think it's also appropriate for the Fed to be forward-looking, which is to recognize that there's lags in the process, that they're getting a restrictive policy in place, 
And the difficult call is, do you stop on the tightening before you've gotten everything you want to see in the data? That's really the the tough call that they're going to have to make here at some point. Uh, I think somewhere in in the range of four, four and a half percent seems perfectly reasonable uh, to be uh, pausing, uh, but they may not have the labor market outcomes at that time that makes them comfortable to do so. Bruce, this is the question, isn't it? I think you just framed it perfectly. How can you be forward looking if you're chasing a lagging indicator? Exactly. And uh, you're also being uncomfortable by the fact that inflation is persistently high, uh, that you're uh, worried about salience in terms of the lagged inflation affecting price and wage setting. So it's really, I think, important to be forward looking, but it's really hard to be forward looking here. Bruce Kassman at JP Morgan. Bruce, wonderful to hear from you, sir. Thank you, as always. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Do you think the return assumptions need to shift lower for the well, next 10 years? Maybe they're shifting right now. Let's do that right now with Kelvacine of RBC Capital Markets. Lori, is it small caps time? Hi, thanks for having me, Tom. And I think it is. If you look at small cap relative to large cap, um, just pull up the, the RTY against the SPX on your Bloomberg. We've been in sort of a trading range all year on the relative trade. And if you look at small caps, we're basically at historic valuations on both an absolute and relative valuation. We've already priced in a big spike in jobless claims. And typically you want to buy small caps uh, when the unemployment rate starts to tick up. So you, you want to keep that in mind as we look ahead to Friday. But I will just say this, um, small caps have really been orphaned for quite some time. Yes. They are more domestic and we are hearing a lot of interest um, in small caps, even from people who are very bearish on the market overall. Um, so right. we're overweight and, and we feel very good about that call. In the turmoil we're in, including low GDP, will there be transactions and combinations that combine small caps into mid caps? It's interesting, Tom. I mean, we have been combing the transcripts uh, among the big cap companies for commentary about M&A, and we're not seeing it pick up yet, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily eminent. But I do think that when you're in a sluggish growth environment, and I think that's the price we have to pay for a short, shallow recession, if indeed that's what we end up getting, I do think companies will try to go out and buy growth. Um, and you know, we, we find that a lot of small cap companies are also much better run than they were in the past, uh, much cleaner balance sheets, much higher quality management teams. Um, so we think the asset base is more attractive than it may have been in past cycles as well. Lori, is overweighting small caps a fight to lose less or actually to get returns that are bigger than some of the negative returns that we're seeing across the board on broad indexes? 
I, I think it's a great question, Lisa, and I think that depends on your time horizon. In the short term, as stocks search for a bottom, I do think it's unlikely that small caps will start going up while everything else is still going down. Um, so it may simply just be that you lose less on the bot on the way down to kind of find that absolute bottom. But at the same time, I will tell you, Lisa, when you talk to people who have done small cap for a very long time and you go back and look at the history, the pivots back into small cap tend to be pretty sharp. So I do think it's an area where if you really kind of wait around and try to pick the bottom in the market, you're going to miss the turn. And you do tend to make a lot of that outperformance in those early days in the trade. Right now, we're looking at 3585 and close on Friday for the S&P 500. Your target for your end is 4200. What's the trigger? What's the pivot point that gets us up there? Is it just the bear market rally uh, that we heard about from a number of analysts? I think that's one thing you can look at. I mean, we actually found if you look at the S&P 500 this year in 2022, it's got about a 72% correlation with how stocks were trading back in 2002, which was another period of kind of painful normalization after a big market shock and initial rally. And so if you sort of go through that playbook, um, there was a fierce 4Q rally, and then you gave most of it back in the first quarter. That seems like a plausible way uh, for things to turn out this time around as well. I think also, Lisa, we're about a month out from the midterm elections. Go back to the summer, I started really getting an earful from a lot of investors about how that would be a potentially positive catalyst for markets. So we do think that's something on investors' radar. And if you look at the generic congressional ballot, after you know several weeks of seeing the polling data kind of shift back in Democrats' favor, we actually saw the Republicans pull ahead of Democrats in the congressional generic congressional ballot data last week. So things are starting to shift a little bit in a more market-friendly way in the latest data there. Laurie, just wanted to squeeze this in. Nike, FedEx, Apple, Tesla. Tesla missing this morning. What are you learning from corporations about how quickly this downturn is coming around? Well, look, I think what we are learning, John, is that we are starting to see some companies rip off the earnings mandate. And if you go back to the summer, that is something investors were telling me they really needed to see happen uh, to get comfortable with buying markets. People said, you know, we want to buy stocks around 15 times P.E., the market around 15, 16 times P.E., but we just need a little bit of certainty on that E. We need to see the numbers come down. You know, we'll see if the early reporters turn out to be a harbinger of what's to come in the actual reporting season. Um, but I do think, you know, kind of getting those earnings expectations down is something that we really need to see. Hey, Laurie, thank you. Awesome, as always. Laurie Cavasina there of RBC Capital Markets. What an interesting day, and it is about the greater economies of the world. One of the great facts is Madrid has the best museum in the world. It is called the Prado, and it is a must-visit, and that speaks to the healing of tourism in Spain. Spain is booming, like Paris, like London. It's been a very strong story, but with it, too, and up to 10% inflation. Maria Tadeo now with the Deputy Prime Minister of Spain. Tom, thank you so much. And we are joined, of course, by Spain's finance minister and deputy prime minister, Nadia Calviño. Buenos dias. Good morning. Buenos dias. I have a lot of questions about Europe. But first of all, I have to get your thoughts on what's going on in the UK. Because today we've seen a huge U-turn from the UK government. Markets really flipping on this country. I don't want to create trouble. But when you look at that country, is it a message in terms of what not to do going into the winter, perhaps, for you? I think it's very good news that they backtracked, uh, in particular, when it comes 
comes to the re reduction of the taxes on the wealthiest parts of society because it really shows that it's not only a matter of financial stability, it's also a matter of fairness. We're all confronted with the challenge how to contain prices, how to support our economies, how to fund our public services, and we need to ensure that we have fiscal sustainability, financial stability, but also a fair distribution of the impact of the war. So that means essentially tax the rich more to some extent. That's what all international institutions are recommending, and this is what the Spanish uh, government has been defending when it comes to the international framework. Not, not specifically or not only this dimension, but generally we need a fair tax system. We need to avoid a race to the bottom, which at the end of the day is making all of us poorer, when we need stronger states to also face the blackmail coming from Russia. And that's a message perhaps for Liz Truss, but I don't want to create trouble intentionally perhaps between the, the EU and, and the UK. So let's talk about Europe. It seems to me there's forces that are pulling from different ways. You have demand destruction, which seems to be working. At least the message is resonating with Europeans. The storage is up, but you have an escalation in the war and an escalation in the energy war. In your view, what's the outlook for Europe going into the winter? We're challenging, at a very challenging moment no? because the war is entering a new phase, so it seems. We also see that Nord Stream supply was cut 1st of September. Uh, the, the positive uh, element here is that prices are not continuing to escalate as they did in past months when Putin was using the energy blackmail. No? So I think that actually what we see now is that the storage level is appropriate, that Europe is, is having a stronger voice when it comes to international energy markets, and we should continue in that direction with a response which is united, determined, and also based on solidarity between the different member states. When you say solidarity, Last week, Germany came out with a 200 billion euro package to save their households and companies. Is that solidarity for you? Well, I understand that each country is, is subject to a different kind of challenge. No, I mean, the increase of energy prices hit Spain, maybe before other countries, because of the flexibility of our electricity markets. But now we see that inflation is already going down in Spain, whereas we see in Germany that the situation is very different. They have a higher dependence on Russian gas and oil. And so uh, we have to be respectful of the different specificities of the different countries and ensure that our framework and our rules are fit for purpose in the sense of allowing for this flexibility in terms of the response at the national level, but reinforcing the European level instruments so that we ensure fair treatment of all citizens and companies throughout the EU. So to reaffirm that message as a final question, on Wednesday the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez will meet with the German Chancellor. Is he going to convince the Germans to drop their opposition to this price cap on gas? I hope so. Well, definitely yeah, Spain, well, uh, for the last year, Spain has been pushing for a European response. We've been pushing for price caps. We've been pushing for a joint purchases, uh, an, um, an overhaul of the European legislation. We managed to have the, the Iberic exception, which is allowing us to have a gas price cap uh, between Spain and, in Spain and Portugal. And this is already saving European, Spanish uh, citizens and companies more than 2.5 billion euros. You know, 
and it's proven to allow us to have lower prices in other countries. It has even decoupled the wholesale gas price from the Mediterranean, the, the Iberian uh, gas from the TTF reference, which shows that we can uh, act and we can change things if we act together. So I am sure this will be uh, discussed in the summit between Spain and Germany on Wednesday, and I hope we do convince Germany to move in this direction. And it's interesting how the diplomatic ties are changing between Madrid and Berlin, perhaps growing closer over the past uh, three weeks, uh, in particular when it comes to potential gas supplies coming in from Spain. But you also make it clear it has to go uh, both ways. Uh, Nadia Calvino, thank you so much for joining us on Bloomberg TV this morning, and we hope to see you very soon, of course. In a, few, in a few hours' time. Thank you, yes. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. And uh, guys, back to you. Maria, thank you. One of the best. Maria today there, alongside Nadia Calvino, Spain's deputy, deputy prime minister. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Joining us from Birmingham is Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden out of the UK. Morning, Lizzie. Morning, John. Well, I'm at Conservative Party Conference and I'm sat here with Chloe Smith, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Chloe, thank you so much for making time for me. It's a wild morning here in Birmingham. This budget that the Chancellor had announced was described as reverse Robin Hood. At the one end, you were cutting the top rate of income tax. That has now been reversed. But at the other end, the Chancellor said he'd cut the benefits of people who were not trying hard enough to get a job. Are you not going to U-turn on that as well when it's equally politically toxic? I think the key point about the growth package that the Chancellor set out is that it is all about getting more people into jobs and getting higher wages. And in fact, you can see that around us as a slogan here at the conference. It's painted on the stairs just over there that we want to be able to deliver more jobs and higher wages. Now, the majority of the growth package set out was to be able to do that. For example, including putting money straight back into people's pockets through the uh, adjustment to the lower rate uh, of income tax. And of course, that builds on the cost of living package and the energy price guarantee. Now, my role is then to be able to help people into those jobs that that growth package will create, and that, to me, is a real priority. So to pay for all your tax cuts, to have any credibility in markets, you're going to have to cut spending. The one thing that the Prime Minister promised yesterday uh, was that she was going to raise pensions in line with inflation. We're in a cost-of-living crisis. Has the Chancellor asked you to look at cutting benefits? 
The Prime Minister was right to talk about the triple lock on pensions. That's been a commitment of ours for a while, and that's been a clear public commitment already. Now, naturally, there is then also the decision to be taken about benefits uprating. This is one for me to take in my role. I can't tell you here and now uh, what that will be and what the data that goes inside it will be, because I have to wait for that data to come to me. Now, the key principle, though, that I want to take in approaching that decision is how we can best protect the most vulnerable in our society. And for me, this builds on those elements of the cost of living support that we have already been doing and delivering. My department has been making payments to people, and there'll be more coming out very shortly, that are supporting people at that time of real need. Why is it fair to guarantee pensions, not benefits, in a cost of living crisis? People need to plan now. And one of the other principles that I really want to look at here is how we protect those who can't uh, perhaps work to raise their own earnings. So, for example, that would usually include pensioners, and it may well include others as well. These are the principles that I'm thinking about very carefully as part of that decision. But let me also say this. As a party, we are about helping more people into work. We shouldn't be writing people off and saying that they can't work. We should instead be looking at what people can do rather than what they cannot do. So that's what the growth package is all about, and that's the golden thread that you see going through the other rest of the work of my department, helping people into work and ensuring that there is an incentive to work. Okay, so you mentioned pensions. Last week, the Bank of England had to step in to bail out the pensions industry uh, from a systemic crash that was triggered by your government. Are you having emergency meetings with the pensions regulator and asset managers? And if so, what proposals are being discussed? Well, colleagues are having the the right meetings, of course, with the pensions regulator, with the Treasury, uh, and across my department as well. I can't give you further details than that, but I'm glad that the Bank of England was able to take the action that they did last week. And naturally, we are keeping a very close eye on this situation because we want there to be a thriving pension industry in this country. That is an essential part of supporting people in their retirement. Chloe Smith, Secretary of State for the Department of Work and Pensions, thank you very much for joining me. John, the question remains then, what happens when the Bank of England's rescue package ends on October the 14th. Unclear if we're going to have the same issues for LDIs. Hey Lizzie, thank you. Looking forward to catching up with you through the next couple of days. Lizzie Burden there out of the United Kingdom. Let's learn something from Dan Skelly. Dan, fantastic year. Notoriously bearish through much of 2022. It's worked out almost perfectly. We're all wondering now for you, what are the preconditions that you want to see? The checkbox... Check, 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 check to add equity exposure. Sure. And good morning. And by the way, it's great to be uh, in studio all together, having the band here back together. So I'm sick as a dog, but continue. It's been two all years, right. Dan. It's been too I'll, long. I'll, I'll inch my chair. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is too. John, to your, to your question, you know, look, we've done a lot of damage, obviously, in the third quarter and last month. But notably, we're, we're still trading around the June lows. But notably, all of that work has been rates, right? We haven't seen the earnings reflected yet. And so talking about Fed speak, I think investors want to hear management speak really at this point and and really kind of throw in more of a towel. So number one is earnings. Number two is PMIs. We haven't seen that contraction yet. Uh, And number three is jobs. And we have a big update coming uh, this week, uh, but we just haven't seen that rise in the unemployment just yet. I've been waiting, waiting, waiting for a research note like you've got, which is real simple. Look at dividend growers. How did dividend growth change? How does dividend growth change given dampened economy, dampened revenue growth, and then down the income statement? How does that filter into the dividend growth decision? Uh, well, when you look at companies, uh, M&A and, and deals have been really dried up this year. So I think you, you look at companies being more defensive. 
Uh, buybacks has obviously been a huge use of capital this year, and dividends continues to be a huge use of capital, and, and uh, investors are rewarding dividend growth wildly this year. How many basis points pickup do you have there with dividend growth versus the riffraff that's out there? I mean, when you look at kind of income styles, dividend growth styles, they're down kind of mid-single digit, high single digit this year versus the S&P down 20% plus. So, Dan, Tom said something earlier at the start of the show that are bonds going to, and John asked him, are bonds going to react the way that they normally do in a downturn where they gain value, people pile in? Tom was saying he doesn't think so. A lot of people agree with him. Do you? Uh, inflation is still stubbornly high. And so if we have kind of a plateauing or a moderation in inflation, I think bonds can certainly act better. But Lisa, to your point, that was the case earlier this year. The first four and a half months of this year was all about stagflation. And so you saw both stocks and bonds down together. It got a little bit better over the summer than, as you've seen, again, bonds have sold off quite rapidly. So I think around the 4% level on the 10-year, there is more value in bonds here to do their job uh, in, a, in a volatile environment. I spoke to Mike Wilson, your colleague, our good friend, in the last couple sure. of weeks. And I asked him whether you guys start to get uncomfortable when everyone starts to share your view. When you start to see some of the big bulls on Wall Street capitulate and Marko Klanovich came about that close on Friday, do you feel uncomfortable when everyone starts getting comfortable with your way of thinking? You do, but your thesis is still in check, right? So when you think about the call Mike made, and we joked a few months ago about that lonely island in, in sure. January. everyone's on board. It's overflowing. You know, what, to your point, Jonathan, you look at the sell side, you look at the buy side, mutual fund cash levels, hedge fund net exposures, and we have a particular vantage because Morgan Stanley is the biggest prime broker out there. So everyone is inching, what is this, inching. a sales call for you? <laughs> We're here in studio. Why, why not? <laughs> you okay. can start whipping sure. out a PowerPoint. No, but to, to Jonathan's point, we are growing a little bit more nervous about that consensus trade, but that doesn't think that doesn't mean things can't go lower still. Credit Suisse cut this morning. I think City did as well. Jonathan Golub Tom has gone to 38.50 wow. for year end, down from 4,300. Big change. When the facts change, I change. I believe that's a on board. That, that yeah. island is very crowded right now. You were the first one there, though, Dan. It's good to see you. Dan Scalado at Morgan Stanley. Mike Thank Wilson you, sir. Mike Wilson nailed it. And just Fantastic. as importantly, Ellen Zentner was transitory and on a dime, she switched. Shifted to a tighter Federal Reserve. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.